netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, and thanks for listening to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Our guest this week is Chief Creative Officer at Maxon Stu Maswitz, and he'll be discussing computational photography with Mike Seymour, loosely centered around the iPhone 13 uh, Pro release, as well as iOS uh, 15.1, which enables ProRes. Uh, Stu's been a really good friend of both Mike and I over the years. Uh, met him, I think, for the first time when he was still working in post, uh, probably for an article for FX Guide or maybe for something for FX PhD. And Mike and I were fortunate enough to be able to spend a week filming with him in both New Zealand and Tokyo, filming courses for FX PhD. So we've gotten to know him pretty well and really respect his opinions and thoughts about um, cinematography and digital cinematography and cameras in general. Um, I've always been really interested in computational photography. In fact, I remember um, <laughs> getting up early in the morning in 2012, hitting shift reload so I could uh, order one of the first Lytro um, cameras, which is a little like four or five inch, little small rectangular brick camera uh, for doing uh, computational photography with the planoptic lenses where you shoot it and adjust the focus and post, which seemed incredible at the time. And, you know, things like actually who can, who, who can forget uh, their cinema version of that, which seemed like they took the small Lytro, uh, put it in some room and a mad scientist started zapping it with rays and boom, ended up with like a six foot Lytro camera for onset filming where you could adjust uh, depth of field after the fact or the focus point after the fact. It's kind of amusing to look back at now, but you know, all those things actually play into this, you know, experimentation and development of computational photography. And what we're talking about now is a bit different. We're talking about from a perspective of walking around with a computer in your pocket with very specialized silicon in it uh, to do a specific task. And uh, the use of um, machine learning and artificial intelligence to make really amazing imagery. And, that, and that's what's happening right now uh, in your pocket in the iPhone. Um, Mike mentions this isn't meant to be an iPhone uh, review per se, but I, I actually think it does a really good job of reviewing things of interest to me, at least in the iPhone, which is uh, some of the, photo the cinematic mode as well as the ProRes. I think it does a really good review of that. Um, but I understand what he means by that because we're, we're talking about in general and and how it can kind of inform and change the industry moving forward, um, both, you know, consumer level, but maybe more importantly at the professional level. So let's go ahead and join that conversation now. I think you're really going to enjoy it as much as I did. It's uh, Mike and Stu. So Stu, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Happy to be here. I mean, you and I have shot in different places around the world, Japan, New Zealand and stuff. And yeah. And and before that, like I remember just uh, devouring your book on uh, indie filmmaking. So like you've got this history of respecting the indie, wanting to have the high end. You've obviously worked at your own host facilities. You're doing amazing work now with the stuff that you're doing. But but into that mix, we never really sort of ever considered the fact that you'd actually have an AI engine that would come in and say, hey, I can make your work look more cinematic. So I guess I wanted to talk to you today to see if we could explore this idea of like, is it possible to have a computer or a machine learning algorithm or whatever you want to look at it, kind of make work more cinematic? Or is that an artistic thing and, and we are kidding ourselves if we think we can make a button that helps us do it. So anyway, that's why I wanted to talk to you today. 
Yeah, sounds great. I love it. So I guess let's start with a few areas. And, and I think the most obvious thing to flag is that this came into sharp relief because the new iPhone 13 came out. Yeah. Not that we want to review it or anything, but it has cinematic mode, right? And yeah. so let's start there. Does that strike you as um, false advertising or a genuine <laughs> step in, in an interesting direction? Um, well, it definitely strikes me as first and foremost advertising, whether it's false or not. I think we have to take the term cinematic mode for what it is, which is a marketing term designed to sell a consumer product. But I think what you and I have been through together is, has been an exciting evolution of whereas, you know, maybe in the early days of dv cameras and the very first versions of magic bullet and stuff we were all about trying to shoehorn consumer products or accessible tools into a semi-professional workflow and so the fact that we're 180 degrees from that now where a consumer device wants to use potentially professional cinematic-esque features to sell a phone to a broad audience is got to be at least a little bit exciting, if not vindicating, right? That we are, we're no longer trying to uh, convince Canon that 24 frames per second is, is a valid thing. Now there's now we're trying to convince menu. Apple at 24 we're not, Yeah, we're, we are right back where we started there. I'm sure we'll get into that. But 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 on the other side, you know, um, it started with Red, but now everyone is trying to elbow each other through the door to hand us the perfect little pocketable cinema camera that shoots 4K, that shoots log, that shoots ProRes or RAW, and it takes a variety of lenses and can fit on a gimbal and all of the stuff that we dreamed about is people are now fighting to offer us at a, at a competitive price. And then Apple comes along and says, you know, we're going to put ProRes and cinematic depth of field as sort of features on, you know, a, what is on, on, on one hand, a profoundly consumer device. And on the other hand is a supercomputer with a decent lens attached to it. Um, it's easy to it's easy to get confused by how that's affected the landscape. You know, it's exciting, it's interesting, and it's a little bit weird. Yeah, there are so many things to unpack here. I think we're going to need to just for the audience um, just discuss a bit of the core technology that allows this because it so influences what's possible and why. So let's agree out of the gate because I know that we're on just completely hallowed ground here when we say. The reason everyone's doing this is out of respect for how good a proper DOP does proper cinematography, right? I mean, and that's what right. we're trying to emulate, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's something that a lot of people got exposed to with the, um, with the rise of accessible large sensor digital uh, movie cameras, whether it was the Canon 5D or whatever was kind of your foray into it. Um, suddenly we were all focus pullers in addition to DV Rebel shooters. And boy, do we ever get a harsh lesson in terms of just how complex the choreography is on a set to make even a simple, you know, slow push in on an actor's contemplative moment work at, you know, F 1.4 <laughs> on a full frame sensor. That's uh, so, so yeah, I think there's, 
there's a there's a respect for the the craft uh, that has to come along with wanting to emulate the result. Okay, but but if I can, in absolutely in no way sort of jump past that, but just simply say, if we acknowledge that up front, then then just the tech here is kind of interesting. So let's just use for where well, you've raised it, like the Canon 4D, which I think we once discussed amongst ourselves. It's like film school in a camera, right? Like it was just yeah. a great thing. Yeah. Okay, but it has two huge fundamental differences to an iPhone. In addition to all the other cool things that an iPhone, which you know I, I applaud, such as incredibly bright screen with a thousand nits and twelve hundred peak and and HDR. But leave all that for a second, because we're going to come back to color grading. Just in terms of the camera, there are two fundamental differences that are should defeat us. But one is that it's just an incredibly small lens in a relatively yeah. small sensor. And so you've been talking about these full frame sensors, right? And we're talking about this sort of by comparison, like, you know, half a fingernail kind of tiny little kind of sensor, which should right. mean that this is completely off the table. Um, but the second aspect about this is that the Canon 5D Mark IV, whatever you wanted to, to refer to, isn't a computational device. And so it right. doesn't allow for computational photography. And so what you're getting is basically a you know, really great camera with lots of autofocus features, blah, blah, but it's not doing computational uh, photography and it's not doing machine learning and applying that stuff. And and so if I can just, just explain this to the audience just super quickly for a second, like the problem is you shouldn't be able to get a good depth of field on a tiny sensor because if you've ever at school did a pinhole camera, you'd know that a pinhole camera has an infinite depth of field. And so right. we want this big sensor so we can have a shallow depth of field. The reason that it can do it is because it basically doesn't get you a shallow depth of field. It computes it. And yeah. um, that's why when it goes into cinematic mode on the iPhone 13, you can take that file onto Final Cut and then reanimate or re-edit that depth of field or the focus pull. So it is a post-process in one sense, but it's it's vastly more than a filter. Um, but I mean, if we go back in time, like it was just absurd to think of being able to do anything with these tiny sensors, which is why we were all racing to full-frame sensors. And yeah, and, and I think it's worth just plunging into that a little bit deeper that that while it's obvious when you see something like shallow depth of field being generated for an image based on depth metadata that is being you know partially captured but also partially honed by machine learning algorithms it's like okay well that is computational photography but it's easy to forget that video on an iphone like you said has been it's it's a miracle that it looks as good as it does and it's been computational photography from minute one just in increasing amounts with each new device release and each new um, software update th there is the the pixels that you get shooting video on an iphone even take away this new cinematic mode they are much more the product of math than they are of light and that is well hidden typically but it's it, you you will occasionally be aggressively reminded of it when you start to try to use these devices in professional scenarios. Yeah, it's funny you should say that. I was going to touch on this later, but a good example of that is 
the one area that the iPhone doesn't give us at the moment um, is a lens flare that is cinematic. And the reason for that, of <laughs> course, is a traditional lens flare, you know, you, you actually is a product of all of that optics in the bigger, vastly bigger lens that is on a, on a normal camera. And so you get these tiny little kind of weird, almost look like a bug lens flare on an iPhone. Yeah. Um, and that isn't the lens flare. I mean, it is a lens flare, but it isn't the lens flare that made, you know, uh, <laughs> Star Wars, a Star Trek films famous. This is the, yeah. the lens flare of, uh, of a, almost an anomaly. And so you could imagine, and I'm, I'm not under any NDA, I'm not sort of saying this, but you could imagine that the, the next cinematic edition would be adding kind of a lens flare that says, oh, I can work <laughs> out where you should have a lens flare. And sure, it's yeah. This bloody great, um, great thing. But yeah, like it's funny, isn't it? It's like, it's just so um, remarkable. And also I think the other thing that's remarkable is that we are talking about fixed lens cameras, which again, if we go back, like one of the huge things about, you know, using a Canon 5D Mark IV, whatever, you, you'd grab these stills lenses that were dramatically yeah. cheaper than cinema lenses, uh, put them on. Now, of course, they didn't focus pull the way we wanted and they didn't do a whole bunch of other things, but hey, they were interchangeable lenses. And if I put an 85 on, someone looked gorgeous on an 85. And if I stuck a 32, it was just this lovely big wide thing. Um, the thought that we're getting all of this out of a, now it's triple lensing, of course, there's three actual yeah. lenses, but still they're fixed lenses. Um, that was another absurd idea. I mean, I would never have bought a, it wouldn't have been, but I would never have bought a digital SLR if it was actually not a digital SLR, but a fixed lens, you know, point and shoot and thought I could do anything cinematic with it. Yeah, in a funny way, it kind of harkens back to like the first Bolex I ever shot with that had that bayonet oh, yeah. on the front, you know, where you could yeah. actually twist it around and get three different lenses at a time, you know, uh, looked like a little octopus. Okay, so in the cinematic mode, because it has such a great depth of field, you can add uh, your own uh, pseudo depth of field uh, in post. And then, of course, now we layer on top of that all this other stuff we're talking about, like facial recognition, um, the ability to segment the image, the ability to derive depth. Because we have multiple lenses, we now have effectively like a stereoscopic pair, though it's not that simple. Uh, but it's a fixed distance between the lenses on the camera. It knows that. It's locked in high, uh, high um, tolerance engineering. And so they kind of derive a depth map. Of course, on the front-facing camera, we have that depth sensor, but that's not what's being used on the back if you're doing um, cinematic mode. And and so my question to you is, do you think that that focus pull that the that the camera is guessing at, I mean, it's inferring, yeah. is plausible, passable, or just <laughs> tempting? It, yeah, I've I in the short time I've had the phone, I've seen both extremes. And I think I think the scenarios that I was experimenting in uh, directly inform the results. So pulled the phone out of the box. My wife and my son were sitting at the kitchen counter just having dinner. And I pulled the phone out and I flipped that mode on and I started shooting. And when my son would look to me, the phone would rack focus to him. And then when he would look at my wife, the phone would rack focus to her and it and the little yellow box would light up around her face. And then when he would turn back to me, his little box would turn yellow and the phone would dutifully rack back to him. And that felt miraculous to me. It felt like 
Apple had nailed it in terms of what, what they talked about in their marketing materials about it, which is that they, they studied how rack focuses would follow a gaze, you know, that that would be how the, 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 the focus would be manually operated would typically a gaze would kind of throw the focus from one face to another. And boy, did I ever feel like they did a great job of that in this incredibly casual, just literally just pulled it out of my pocket to try it out environment. Then I had a friend come over to my studio and I sat her down the chair and I set up Dolly Track and I tried to set up a shot that I've attempted to pull focus on myself before while operating my own camera and uh, done a very poor job of, for lack of professional training, where I'm pushing in with a Dolly move at the same time as the actor is leaning in forward, right? So I've got these two compounding distances, which professional focus pillar, no, no problem, but for me, while panning and tilting at the same time, it, I, it's like trying to pat my head and rub my tummy at the same time. I just can't figure it out. And the phone did a great job of it, but in the process of doing so, changed exposure radically throughout the shot. Um, then when I manually asked it to focus on something in the background, because she threw her gaze to the background, but the thing she was looking at wasn't a face. And the phone said, well, the back of her human head is still more important than the wall that she's looking at. And I said, no, I want you to focus on the wall. So I tapped, you know, the wall and it threw the focus to the wall, but also changed the exposure at the same time. So it didn't feel professional to me. It didn't feel miraculous. It felt like it was just barely keeping up with what I wanted. And the results didn't impress me as much be, because I had put it into more of a professional scenario with dolly track and a tripod and stuff and it was falling down even though it had kept her face in focus through all the hard part so you know it's landing squarely where it was aimed right for the casual user pulling out the phone and shooting their family in a easygoing environment you're you feel like you're being given this gift of this kind of automatic focus that feels cinematic in a air quotes kind of a way but as soon as I put it into a more professional scenario, I thought there are limitations here that I'm not sure how I would overcome if I was trying to use this even on a semi-professional project. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, this this whole discussion isn't meant to be a review of the iPhone per se. So let's let's sort of break from what it actually does and what it could do. So there's yeah. no reason why exposure needs to be linked to... Um, to the you know subject yeah focus. and we've seen it with you know apps like filmic pro and others yeah. on the iphone and other devices where um they can harness the power of the device but for a more niche audience that wants more manual control yeah. and and uh, the other thing of course as you're alluding to and i mean i i think you're being generous if you said it was the equivalent to patting your head and just you know rubbing your stomach it feels <laughs> to me like doing that while hopping uh, on a skateboard, yeah. <laughs> I mean, focus pullers are, are remarkable um, uh, people for managing to do stuff. Also, incredibly stressful job, right? Like you're punching yeah. in for that emotional moment, and the actors like nailing it, and everyone's sort of like desperately hoping that you kept uh, focus. And um, and actually, you know, it's a it's a harder job on digital formats than it ever was on film in a weird way. I mean, we they have we have a big high res preview, but um, as a as a AC once told me on a set, he said, on film, you have a 
you have a soft landing pad for what's in focus. Because if you get anywhere in the emulsion, you're in focus. The emulsion is thick, but the surface of a digital sensor is not thick. So it either, either is sharp or it's not. You, there is no almost. <laughs> and, and that was kind of a, a shocking revelation to me that, um, and you kind of see it now that we're getting so many of our favorite movies transferred to beautiful 4K remastered versions that, you know, there are certainly shots in a lot of our favorite movies where it's the earlobes that are in focus, not the eyelashes, you know. It's funny you should say that. I've been rewatching the entire series of ER and the number of times that I'll go, hang on, they're kind of focusing on the wrong thing here because I've yeah, yeah. so many things going on on those Steadicam shots. Yeah. Um, but but it's odd because, of course, I'm watching it on this great TV these days and, you know, it's really big and, like, I can really tell. Um, yeah. But getting back to that thing, though, so, so it's a hard problem um, and I'm not – as I said, not the Apple review, but like what Apple's trying to do um, in your scenario is is obviously cater to a sensible kind of broad audience. Having yeah. said that, you could take your file and edit it later, which is the one thing yeah. you absolutely can't do with the uh, the film or professional uh, focus pull on a digital uh, big cinema camera. Yeah, and I did that with that that first test that I shot. There was a moment where my wife in the background kind of made a funny face. And so I popped it open in the Photos app. And I wasn't sure what to expect. I'd seen the demonstration at the keynote, but I hadn't really committed to memory what their user interface was for editing the focus points. Um, and again, I was just kind of, I mean, I was giggling to myself uncontrollably at how beautifully they designed the user interface to this, because you know I care about that stuff deeply with my day job, and I, I just couldn't help but chuckle at how perfectly they'd nailed it. You're playing back the footage, and the focus boxes are there superimposed over the footage while you're playing it back. And so in the moment where it was focused on my son, but I wanted it to be focused on my wife, all I had to do was just tap on the box on her face and it just added a keyframe and just racked focus to her there. Now, the physical focus of the phone, you know, because the the device is 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 doing the virtual depth of field on top of real focus, right? So so what I wound up with, the result that I got was that it did in fact appear to throw the focus to her. But when I put that up on my big old, you know, display here, I can see that it's making her as sharp as it can. And she appears to be the sharpest thing in the frame, but she's not actually in physical focus. There is enough of a sense of depth of field from yeah. even that tiny sensor that there is a difference. And I think even in Apple's keynote with their examples that they showed, I think a lot of us noticed what appeared to be kind of a focus breathing. And it, it seems to come from the virtual depth of field fighting with the physical depth of field. And that's been a problem that has plagued other depth aware cameras as well you know i even bought that l16 camera from the light company that had 16 different um yeah. you know tiny lenses in it and and ostensibly was going to use computational photography to emulate uh a 24 to 70 zoom lens at down to f1.4 but the thing is that all those little lenses had to focus physically and so you'd bring it into their proprietary software and it would show you the range that it could refocus in and it wasn't throwing focus from a foreground person to a background person it was okay i got the earlobes not the eyelashes you could probably fix that which is still pretty miraculous but one thing i yeah i keep coming back to is this sense of when when miracles are being performed on images sometimes you can tell <laughs> that that the result is the is is the product of some miraculous uh, 
mathematics in, instead of just pure optical, uh, you know, path and skill of the operator. I mean, I think I think we can agree that in the specific case of the iPhone 13, the UX, the user experience for most people is, you know, remarkable because it's easy to use. It does what it's trying to do. And inside those technical boundaries we discussed, it's managing to produce something far better than you could get if you were just not having those features available to you. And in a way that most people would find incredibly acceptable. And of course, uh, as you said, like Apple's not making its primary app uh, and uh, application one aimed at professionals because, you know, yeah. that's not what it's about. But but let me ask you this. If we assume for a second that we're just discussing this in the general sense, is there anything there that you feel like won't be able to be solved, either in a specialist app or another version of another phone or whatever? Like, it feels to me like these are big strides that we're making and notwithstanding that one point we've touched on, which is there has to be some physical focus, even for a near but not exact pinhole type uh, scenario. Yeah. We, we, I mean, it, it yeah, feels I, like it could get better from here, right? It doesn't feel like we've hit the, the yeah, limit. Yeah, I, I, have, I have the same kind of feeling about cinematic mode on the iPhone as I did with their original portrait mode when it was first released, which is that in its first version, you know, people were critical of it, but I saw the potential. It's always good to remember this is as bad as it'll ever be, right? So if you felt like you were getting harsh edges on things or hairs being cut off or whatever, I still struggle with, you know, if I try to take a photograph of a cocktail, it wants to blur out the lip of the uh, of the of the glass. I feel like I need to go down to Apple and and make everybody a bunch of drinks and have a little photo session and <laughs> explain to them explain to their so algorithm. Don't you just manually adjust that? Because like I mean, it comes in on in a portrait mode at like whatever it is f two, and you can just change that to like f five point six and just back off that amount of blur. Yeah, but I want all the glorious blur. I just want it oh, in all okay. the right places, you okay. know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, so so they've improved portrait mode enormously uh, over the years, kind of quietly actually, but I've noticed it getting better to the point where I trust it more uh, these days than I did before. And so, you know, cinematic mode will presumably improve as well. Um, the question that I always ask, you know, you and I love movies and we love kind of some of the futzy nuances of movies. And especially when you're in the visual effects field, you get really specific about, you know, matching the defocus qualities of a particular lens, right? Like you're putting some CG into a shot that has a very specific kind of uh, bokeh quality that you want to match precisely. And we spend a lot of time on that and get to know all those details really well. Um, there are some crazy, ridiculous things that happen with out of focus stuff in movies. And there have been beautiful shots in films that are odd optical accidents or beautifully captured moments of, you know, what you might consider to be like an optical aberration or whatever. You know, I remember when I was shooting with Vincent LaFerre when we first gotten our hands on one of the Canon cameras that could do really well in low light. And we made this little film called Nocturne. And there's just this one shot of a, of skateboard wheels approaching a rock and the kid on the skateboard hits the rock and flies off and that's what precipitates the events of the short and and what's amazing about it is that the rock is in focus i shot it with a hundred millimeter macro and and 
the, the so the skateboard is an out of focus blob in the background, but there's car headlights back there. And the car headlights are bigger out of focus blobs. And in each one of those bokeh circles from the car headlights is a little upside down skateboard wheel, perfectly sharp because of the weird way that light crisscrosses its way through. And so you know that a skateboard's coming with the sound and with that visual. And I don't think any computational photography is gonna make an upside down sharp skateboard in the middle of a car headlight bokeh okay, okay, but let me just imagining from- so, so let me just jump in there and ask you this question, right? Which is what, where <laughs> yeah. I was gonna go, but- yeah. Yes, I totally agree with you, right? And yes, I adore your uh, your cinematic um, uh, aesthetic, I guess I'd call it. But here's that: is that ours, or is that is that true for a generation younger than us? In other words, we came up with you know a thirty five millimeter filmed big picture, maybe you know shot by one of the great uh, DOPs, but it was yeah. you know it was on film. It had those optical characteristics. It had those artifacts and all those things that imprinted on me, oh my God, this is just a great sort of cinema ride. Is that true of a generation that grew up under just digital cameras and digital cinematography? Are they still going to see those artifacts as, as being inherently cinematic or are they going to see those just as weird aberrations? Well, and that's a great, what, what a wonderful question that is. Uh, I mean, I was kind of taking the cinematic mode equals shallow depth of field presumption put forward by Apple and and others and just kind of trying to interrogate some of the nuances out of it in terms of saying, well, yes, you made that softer, but did you really make it defocused in a way that is satisfying to an optics geek? Um, but I do think you have an important point there, which is, you know, is is Apple, is it a, is it a bunch of old white guys who are developing this marketing language around cinematic mode kind of maybe secretly knowing that kids are going to be using it vertically to film TikToks, if if at all. And that, you know, I mean, I don't mind telling you, Mike, that I, I feel like some of the most interesting filmmaking that's happening right now is on TikTok with, you know, crappy cutout effects and weird graphics and vertical video and, you know, and compelling, interesting personalities. Like I, whether whether the definition of what is cinematic is changing, or whether the concept of things being cinematic, equating with quality in a modern viewer's mind, is still valid. Um, you know, I can't say. I I do feel that that good old fashioned cinematic in the way that you and I understand it is still is still alive and well for the time being. Um, uh, but I, I think that if you if you made a fiction series on Netflix at 60 frames and Netflix figured out a way to stream it to your house at 60 FPS, I don't think people would like the way it looked, you know. Um, so but... I agree with you. I think there's like such, such a volume of historical uh, high quality cinematography that that it's still completely valid. But I also agree that I, I don't know if you remember this when the whole I mean, God, we're showing our age here, but well, at least I am. But um, when um, when uh, the sort of digital print revolution came through, 
people were producing these kind of weird aliased font things with these kind of digital collage things. Right, yeah. And it drove me nuts because I was like, no, no, we're trying to get the fine edge that it's all exact. And and they're like, no, they're embracing the artifacts that were digital. And I was like, but I'm saying we're trying to hide those. (laughs) Remember the flat look that was popular, you know, when cameras started to be able to shoot log or or log-esque, um... And then something, some awful things happened in some color suites somewhere where some clients saw that and fell in love with the way it looked or some colorists saw the potential. And all of a sudden there was this brief and, uh, you know, blessedly brief uh, trend of this kind of super flat look. <laughs> it was like, no, we captured all this dynamic range so that we could emulate the you know, film negative, film print, you know, throw half that stuff away or use it all for, for highlight roll off. Uh, but, but there was a time where people were obsessed with just showing you all of that stuff. And I mean, I, I do feel like I'm perilously close to complaining about my daughter's expensive ripped jeans that they come with rips in them already. Yes. And, yeah. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> couldn't they get them? Um, but okay. But, but let's transition there because you've kind of touched on the other huge aspect that I want to discuss on this, which is, um, these cameras, like in the iPhone 13, so they're shooting ProRes. Now, whether yeah. you're shooting it in, you know, one of the apps that lets you pick which version of ProRes um, that Apple is supporting, because it's supporting a bunch, um, you know, it, again, it's kind of unheard of that you would actually have a a thing in your pocket that's meant to be a phone <laughs> that's yeah. shooting ProRes. Now, it plows through memory, but nevertheless, this opens the floodgates, or does it? to really complex color grading because yeah. the limitation of grading uh, if the material is heavily compressed is that it quickly bans and produces artifacts that we're just going to agree for now are bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. And uh, so I guess my, my question to you is like, you know, what's your response to that? Because if, if you're known for anything, um, in, in addition to the things I mentioned earlier, it's this embracing of really interesting cinematic color palettes. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and and in order to do that, you need um, you need kind of the sense of a digital negative to work with, right? So um, so in the in the days of the five D, one of the most popular pages on my website was the page about how to get the flat you know picture profile on your Canon camera, right? Um, we couldn't shoot log, but we could get as close as we could by just backing off on some contrast and sharpening and things. So. Um, so then, then you've got the iPhone, which shoots the least raw images. You know, they are the most cooked images that you could possibly imagine. And if you bring them up on a scope, you know, you will see that they are pushed out to the very edges in terms of, you know, uh, peaked out colors. And, you know, they just want it to be punchy and poppy. I mean, this thing is, this thing is done, you know. And if you want to then nudge it in a particular direction, you know, it is a bit like trying to, you know, reheat a piece of salmon that's already been seared and had the sauce drizzled on it. You know, it's just not going to survive kind of coming back into a semi-raw state after it's been prepared. So good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so um, luckily (laughs) one of the unsung features of the, um, of the ProRes recording on the iPhone 13 is that they back off a little bit on that color cookedness. You know, it's still cooked. It's still not anywhere close to raw or log or anything like that. It's very done, 
but it is not quite as peaked out. I shot a side-by-side -side test of just a, a model in front of a green screen and the, the uh, HEVC version on the iPhone, the, in, the, in the red channel, the green is completely clipped to black and in the ProRes version, there's detail in all three channels. So, um, so someone at Apple understood that along with ProRes, we also kind of wanted them uh, not to quite finish the dish, even though I will also say the flip side of that is that eliminating that MPEG compression and replacing it with a much lighter weight, uh, more forgiving compression of, or sorry, less forgiving compression of, of uh, ProRes gives you a more clear window into all of those miracles that Apple is working on the phone. So if you're thinking that you're gonna shoot some ProRes on your iPhone and that the veil will be lifted, and you're gonna have this crystal clear image there, uh, that is not going to be the case. What instead is going to be a crystal clear vision of all of the computational photography Apple is doing. And by that, I mean denoising and edge enhancing and all of these digital tricks that they're doing, even in broad daylight to eke out a clean 10-bit image from that fingernail-sized sensor. Yeah, the question really though becomes, are they tricks or are they valid steps in producing a workable base for you to then grade on? And I mean you, Stu, like you, if you want to go yeah. in a really nice, um, dare I say, diehard type of grade, <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you go, yeah, well, ProRes is going to let me get there more easily, or do you feel like, yeah, now I'm just fighting a different battle? No, 100% ProRes is going to get you there better, uh, both because the colors are a little backed off and also um, because of the uh, perceptual nature of that MPEG compression, right? So it makes the image on the screen look good, but as soon as you try to push and pull it in any different direction, you start to tease out contrasts between things that were always meant to be right next to each other, and you realize that the whole of someone's facial complexion was actually comprised of maybe only, you know, 15 or 20 shades of pink, you know, and, um, and in my tests, what I noticed was uh, that especially if you were trying to bring out details in the shadows, the ProRes was immediately, obviously superior, you know, the, the shadow details is where all the MPEG garbage goes to hide. And in the ProRes version, it's pretty clean. So you could definitely recover some information there if you wanted to brighten up a little bit. Um, so it's, it's real. It's not, um, it's, it is, it's definitely valid. Um, and I think, I think the real innovation there is not so much the ProRes option for the built-in Apple uh, camera app, but is, is actually kind of the thing that they didn't even really make too big a point of, but Remember when the Mac Pro came out just a couple of few years ago and you could get a separate hardware card for it for doing ProRes encode decode? Yep. Well, now that is built into your telephone. <laughs> like that, it's, it's encoding and decoding ProRes in hardware. And that used to be a separate multi-thousand dollar card that you would add to your multi-multi-thousand dollar you know, computer that needs to roll around on thousand dollar wheels on your floor. Now, now it's built into your phone, which means that someone like Filmic Pro can harness it even before Apple has released their version of it. And that means that they can tie it to, again, those fussy, more sort of pro-esque features that, that we like. And, and, uh, and, and that's, that's the true pro feature of ProRes on the iPhone is, 
is the is the hardware capability, not necessarily the, the feature in Apple's own app. So we alluded to this earlier, Stu, but one of the things, I mean, there are some really clever things in the uh, cinematic mode. I mean, I love, for example, that it's monitoring things before they come into frame. So it doesn't suddenly say, oh, a face is now in frame, pull focus to it. It, it registered it when it was outside what was recording. Yeah. But for all of the stuff that I love, would you like to comment on the frame rate? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, this is just such... Uh, it's so hard because I felt like we got at, we 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 won this battle. You know, it seemed like there was a good you know year or more where a good chunk of my blog and life were about trying to get you know Canon engineers to understand that more frames per second wasn't always better. Um, and so many devices would would come off the truck with the the frame rate matching, you know, the the refresh rate of the displays they imagined they'd they'd be uh, uh, projecting on. So uh, um, I got really good at finding the type of project to shoot with my Canon 5D that I could shoot at 30 and play back at 24 for a slight slow motion effect. So yeah, along comes this cinematic mode literally called cinematic and the one thing it can't do is the cinematic frame rate of 24 frames per second it seems locked at, at 30. and yet i'll give apple their credit that if you now watch back something that on a display can run at 120 frames a second or whatever and it was shot at 24 it'll play 24 on the phone so yeah i've got to think this is a temporary aberration in the matrix and we'll soon have that result i can't believe that we're not one of about a hundred thousand people that have made this point I hope so. I mean, I, I, my fear is that it has something to do with the refresh rate of the LiDAR hardware or something, but I, I want to just think of it as a 1.0 glitch. I noticed, I kind of got in and with some tweezers and dissected the, um, the test material that Catherine Bigelow shot for Apple's keynote event. And I noticed that all of the stuff where they were showing off cinematic mode was in fact at 30, which was the frame rate of the, um, the video stream that Apple uh, uh, streamed, but, um, but that anytime they weren't using it, so all of the bursting through the door or the cowboys in the bar or the Vietnam, you know, trudging through the muck scene, all of that stuff was shot 24. So I have to trust uh, that the filmmakers, they, they, uh, they leaned on to, uh, to test their, their early versions of this stuff were telling them in no uncertain terms that uh, 24 frames per second is, is table stakes for anything even adjacent to the word cinematic. Absolutely. I wish I could remember the comedian that came up with this skit, which I'm now going to reference. But anyway, he was um, saying that he was on a flight from LA to New York and this is when they first introduced internet on the plane. And so they get on the plane, they sit down, and the guy beside him, and they're like, so just uh, welcome on board today, and we'll be uh, test flying uh, across to uh, Los Angeles from New York, and you might be interested to know that we have uh, internet available as a test on the flight. And everyone's like, what? And they're like, yeah, so we enjoy that free uh, and, uh, you know, safe travel. They like, fly off, and they're up in the air, and like everybody's like, oh, my God, I can, like, got internet in the plane. Like, it's so boring in the plane. I've got something amazing, right? And then three quarters of the way across, it stopped working, right? And they yeah. were like, they were like, I'm sorry, it's not working. And the guy beside him was, oh God, this, oh, it's just outrageous. Like really kind of annoyed, <laughs> right? And the comedian was like, hello, 
We're sitting in a tube in the middle of the air at 30,000 feet. It's a yes. miracle beyond belief. And you're complaining about something <laughs> that you didn't even know that you had like half an hour ago. And yet you're like thinking that it's unreasonable that you no longer have it. Like your expectations reset. And did I mention that you're sitting in a chair at 30,000 feet that yeah. should just like not exist? And so I feel like that obviously with this stuff as well. Like, you know, you kind of at some point you like just, you know, like uh, a few good men, right? Um, all I need you to do is just say, if you're Apple, just I want you to say thank you and uh, and let me get on with my job. <laughs> I yeah, don't want yeah. You to criticize. Well, but anyway, and, and I actually think I I love that point. I think that was Louis C.K. By the way, right. uh, it is a brilliant bit. Um, uh, the um, the I think I think your point is well taken, in that this new this new iPhone comes out and we want to poke and prod at it and say, well, or we want to I guess we want to sort of. Uh, answer for ourselves the prompt in Apple's own marketing material uh, that that the filmmakers who got their hands on the the early versions of the camera said that there's going to be sort of a filmmaking revolution thanks to this device and and I I, I hopped on Twitter to be a little critical of that um, that statement because I actually think what I call I mean this is this is right in the sweet spot for you and me right like things we've spent a good long time talking about. Um, accessibility of filmmaking tools, right? Um, like when, like there was a point where it wasn't enough. And so every new camera was interesting because every new camera sought to, to explore territory that we had surveyed, but we hadn't yet managed to plant a flag in, right? So DV cameras come out, Okay, but they're not 24p. Okay, Panasonic solves that, but they're still standard def. Okay, well then then we get some high def cameras, but they still have small sensors. Okay, well then we get a large sensor camera, but it's pixel binning and line skipping. Okay, well now we've got some large sensor cameras that are no longer pixel binning and line skipping. Okay, well now they've got crazy stupid rolling shutter. Okay, well we're working on that too. Okay, so it's when are we done? You know, did we get there? You know, and I don't know what that moment was for you. I almost don't even know what that moment was for me because of the nature of what you're describing, the hedonic treadmill, right? The like, we, we adapt very quickly to positive circumstances and we can never go back, right? So um, it's fun to go back and watch like the original launch of the iPhone, just using an iPhone as a convenient example since we're talking about it so much. Watching Steve Jobs demo the original iPhone, when he's just typing the name of that restaurant in San Francisco that he's trying to find on the map, um, there's a very long delay from each finger press to when the, the letter appears on the screen. You know, you see it now, but at the time it felt miraculous, you know, and, but to our modern eyes, it's like, oh my God, there's something wrong with that phone. It's broken, <laughs> you know, and uh, like, maybe you need to restart it. Um, and so, so yeah, we, um, we adapt very quickly. And so I actually kind of look around my studio here and I'm like, well, gosh, what, what was it? You know, was it the 5D Mark III or was it the Sony A7S II or was it the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema 4K? Like when did we hit, you know, peak accessibility for filmmaking? And, but, but no matter how I think about that question, the answer is we definitely have hit it. Like we actually we're done. <laughs> like if, if there was going to be a revolution in independent filmmaking, thanks to equipment, we would have seen it already. I, I don't think the phone is going to do it. 
in fact, I found it really annoying just in that very short test shoot I did yesterday with, with my neighbor who was kind enough to come over and sit in my chair while I dollied in on her. Like it was, it was so annoying to have my phone be stuck to a dolly because of all the other things I wanted to be doing with my phone. Like take a photo of your setup. I wanted to take a photo of my setup. I had to use an iPad to do it like an animal. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, so I want to, okay. So that being said, I'm now going to pixel criticize or not. No, I'm not even going to mm. criticize. I'm just going to like dial right in. Okay. So one of the things I find really interesting um, in this gray area of what we may call a trick or we may call magic or we may call just really clever computational photography is the HDR um, analysis that's going on on a group shot. So just to set the yeah. stage for those that are listening, because I know Stu knows this. So uh, the camera is actually segmenting the image. So right away, it's got clever machine uh, learning and like basically AI to work out different parts of the screen. And then it's working out which parts of the screen are skin tone. And then it's working out the exposure range that it can get for those parts of the picture separate to maybe the background. And so what it's doing is it's building this like complicated, uh, effectively separately color graded or processed jigsaw puzzle of imagery. That means that your image that comes together has an adjustment of exposure, white balance, detail settings, noise reduction, tonal range, uh, and just basically high dynamic range in the uh, digital fusion ISP stuff that the phone's going on with. Now, yeah. that process, um, I'm not saying you couldn't do it if you were sitting at an old fashioned big ass Da Vinci in a grading suite with, you know, like somebody at, uh, at company three, but it's like a heck of a lot of actual processing. My question to you now is as a filmmaker, is that what you want or is that like, well, it's not necessarily control that I have, but having said that, it's so darn good that I'll take it. Yeah, I, I think it's somewhere in between because, because like I was alluding to before, some amount of that is table stakes for getting a usable image out of this phone in the first place. And, and particularly, it's about dynamic range. So uh, if you have a, a phone that's a year or two old, you can test this yourself. You can um, go to an environment where there's a bright sky and some detailed foreground, all of which should be, you know, rendered in 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 vivid detail by your phone. And if you just frame up a shot of that with your phone, it'll look great. But if you tilt down and eliminate the sky from the frame and then rapidly tilt back up, what you'll see is that for a moment, the sky is blown out and then it will it will fade back into proper exposure. Um, you can even sometimes see this with people's faces. Um, you'll see them move in such a way that their face will become momentarily blown out. And then the and then the the, the smarts behind the the image processing will say, Oop, that's a face. We can't let that get overexposed and it'll fix it. Um, and what, what's happening is, to the best of my understanding, is that Apple has got this amazing integration with their hardware and their software such that they can actually do all of that semantic segmentation that you were talking about and say, oh, that's a face, that's a sky. We want all of that stuff and actually send signals back to the sensor and say, in this region, I'm not going to give you as much voltage because I'd actually like you to record a little bit less light here. And that is done in um, segments across the sensor. And this is the sort of dynamic tone mapping that you sometimes hear people talk about with the, the iPhone. And it's miraculous, but it's problematic. 
Um, it puts halos around things. It shifts and wiggles in weird ways. If you slowly pan off of that sky, um, you might see some flexing or some weird kind of spatial exposure changing. Um, the, 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 it, it is exactly Louis C.K. sitting on the plane. It's miraculous that we're even here. And yet I immediately see all the problems with it, you know? Um, so uh, we don't expect that, you know, like what, what we were taught when we were first picking up accessible cameras was the first thing you want to do is turn auto exposure off, right? Because you don't want the camera exposure breathing for you as you pan from here to here. But then by turning off the auto, you're, you're volunteering to do it yourself. So if you ever needed to change the exposure when you were moving from one lighting situation to another, you would take over, take over that job yourself and hopefully do a clean job of it. But at least you wouldn't be hyper correcting to every little fluctuation and brightness in the shot. Um, there's so much auto magic going on in the phone that I know, for instance, like the Filmic Pro folks are, were uh, frustrated that they couldn't turn all of it off. But I think at a certain point, if you turned all of it off, it would just be the, the images that the phone is trying to make would actually just dissolve like sand in your fingertips. There wouldn't be anything there anymore. <laughs> um, and, and so like this test shot I shot yesterday where I was able to, with the ProRes, maintain foreground detail, it has bright white lit you know, clouds in the sky, and then the dark underside of a, of a pier on the waterfront. And it's all, it's all being captured in perfect high dynamic range with pretty good detail. And that's ridiculous. Like that's actually amazing. <laughs> and, and yet it's not temporally stable. So for a still, great. But for video, if you then pan off of that, you're gonna see some stuff that's gonna feel like somebody 20 years ago leaving their camcorder on full auto mode. Okay, so let me get, let, let me, um, let me, my lord, treat the witness as hostile. So <laughs> uh, you have helped uh, countless filmmakers with Magic Bullet Suites in producing more cinematic looking material by applying yeah. work in post. So are you telling me, I, I presume that Magic Bullet doesn't have, um, extensive machine learning segmentation stuff so are you telling me that if you did have that you wouldn't use it oh what a great question that, by the way <laughs> um yeah we don't have it yet um and we've and we and there are products out there that do and um my bent has always been with magic bullet and the other tools that we are making you know uh cars for people who like to drive you know so um, that doesn't mean that I don't want it to be easy, but I want it to be easy and fun to do the work. I don't want to presume to do the work for you. Now, having said that, of course, being able to identify things like faces and either do special things to them or allow the, uh, the colorist to do things to those regions is inarguably useful. Um, the, uh, the the challenge there is when you when when it's uh, when you can't turn it off right so right. Um, that that's that's the that's the challenge like one of these test shots I shot was my son after his baseball practice and the sun was going down and I chased him all around the field as he was trying to squeak in just a little bit 
uh, more uh, baseball with his with his friends who had stayed late. And the lighting and the colors are changing dramatically. Every time I turn around, there's either a giant orange sunset in the frame or we're looking in the other direction. And I sat down to actually just try to render out a little clip of it to show some folks. And what I was doing, Mike, is I was using Magic Bullet to try to counteract all of the auto color adjustments that the phone had done. I was just trying to even it back out again. <laughs> so, yeah, but but so let's move off of Apple completely to Adobe, right? Because Adobe sure. is uh, heavily now, and I think it's a reaction, and I, I'm not, again, not speaking under any NDA or anything, but I just personally think it's a reaction to the success that's come from DaVinci becoming a better editing tool that Adobe yeah. has said, well, okay, we have a editing tool. We better make it better on color correction. What do we have? We have this um, universal uh, branded thing, which is basically a lot of different machine learning. Right. But we'll take that and we'll just start applying that in our, in our, in our editing product so that we can provide really good um, uh, machine learning in, informed color grading uh, at a level that they previously hadn't been seeming to be interested in. I guess I'd love your opinion about that because um, I don't think that it's there yet, but there seemed to be a, a, an interest in doing this. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there is an interest. I, I think that if you... If you went onto Adobe's website, and I'm saying this very respectfully, I love Adobe's stuff and I use it constantly. It's yes, Adobe software that is behind your face on my screen right now. Um, the the but but find me a a 20 minute tutorial from Adobe about how to do color correction in Premiere. I don't think it exists. I don't think historically Adobe has embraced the idea that a person would pursue the art of color grading as a as a passionate creative topic um and and i think that's where the stuff i've designed has resonated with people whether it's magic bullet looks or magic bullet colorista i think i would be i would flatter myself to think that people like to use those tools because we offer you a bunch of cool presets but we also go out of our way to hand you the controls and say, please make this your own. Um, so it, I have enormous respect for Adobe's R&D division and all of their, I think they group it all under that, like you're saying, the brand of Sensei. Um, uh, they recently had a blog post about some of the new masking stuff that they're doing in Adobe Camera Raw and Photoshop and Lightroom. And it's miraculous, so cool. Um, so I'm not, I, I'm not saying that there's not a place for machine learning to help the creative artist. I do think that it is a unique uh, uh, software design problem to have all of that machine learning stuff be a, an, a, a dutiful assistant to your creative endeavors versus uh, presuming to do the creative part for you, I guess. Yeah, I mean, okay, but let me just say this, like you, so I mean, I, I totally, I, you know, you beat me to the punch, right? I mean, I love using your tools and have for uh, years since you first showed them to me, right? Like I've just been like, but one of the things that I got from it is I learned, like I got a, a private 
you know, in the comfort <laughs> of my own living room, Stu advice on stuff because I just saw what your tools did to an image. And I was like, oh, I see what he's doing there. Oh, okay. So those are what's happening. That's what's happening in the shadows. Makes sense yeah. once I kind of see it, right? And then, as you say, I had control on that myself. So is there not something to be said for these tools uh, teaching by showing yeah. the examples of what can be done? Um, like in yeah, and, and if, if uh, you know, our version of that primitive though it may be, machine learning though it may lack, is that we have this thing in Colorista called guided color correction. And it was based on sitting with an actual colorist who said, you know, I love sitting down with Colorista and diving deep, but I've got five editors over there who are just cranking out stuff for me. And I just needed to teach them how to balance out their shots, you know, just to get them evened out. And he went down his process with me and it was taking all the color out, setting the black point, setting the white point, adjusting contrast, and then gradually bringing the color back in. And I just said, do you mind if I just lift this process out and just turn it into a user experience that a person can just step through? And at each of those moments in our guided color correction, when you're setting the black point, setting the white point, setting the contrast, bringing back the color, we have a little notch in the slider that is our recommended setting, right? So we have some, you know, computer knowledge in there, some, some heuristics to say, we think this would be a good place to put it. But we, but then we put text right above that that says, please don't use this setting without checking to see if you don't like another one better. Um, because I, I want you, I want to teach, I want, you know, to lead a horse to water, teach a man to fish. What do I want to do? I want to teach a man to lead a horse to water is what I want to do. While um, fishing. <laughs> while fishing. Yeah. Um, and and uh, and so, the response okay, to that so feature that. has been really positive. Yeah, no, you do. I mean, it's great, right? It's a, it's a, yeah, it's like the we joked before about you know film school and a camera, like it's color grading in a in an app. Um, yeah. But if I was like running the clock forward again, not talking about you, your, your company in particular, but just sort of generally, isn't there a implicit promise in machine learning that it could spend time in the background seeing how stew tends to grade things and yeah. then start offering the stew grade back to stew. Yeah, where's that <laughs> i mean that's the thing i that's where that's what i want in lightroom right it's like you've seen yes. how i've color corrected literally thousands of photographs but take a stab at it just make it take a guess but learn from my training models not not yours you know yeah uh, well it, i mean this i even have a blog post like this from a thousand years ago of why doesn't back when netflix would email you would no mail you a physical dvd like why they would recommend movies based on this giant algorithm and it's like back then you actually had like friends in netflix and it's like just just let just let their recommendations be based on the five people that i actually care about whose opinions i actually value you know sometimes the um the the desire uh to to automate things uh can kind of uh uh, make you overlook the sort of obvious recommendations, you know, that you're, you're actually swimming in a pool of, of really valuable data about how this specific person likes their images to look. So, yeah, yeah, I do. I actually think for things like, you know, balancing out shots, consistency or um, repairing damage in images and things like that. I mean, who wouldn't love to color correct one shot and have a hundred subsequent shots at least be in the ballpark. That's the other thing about guided color correction is that uh, unlike other sort of automatic matching things, 
it actually just puts all the colorista controls into positions and tells you what they are so you can then go and edit them it's not a black box that you yeah. you can't edit you know and th those are all important things to me and if we were ever to do something that utilize more machine learning I, I i wouldn't want it to preclude I, I would want it again to function as a as a as a dutiful assistant who is hopefully taking some of the busy work and drudgery out of out of your day and leaving the fun and creative parts to you yeah so if i got a job as your prep person uh digitally speaking and i'm yeah. in your facility one of the first questions i'd ask you is like what are we what's our target for this right and so I'm wondering, in your uh, actual application of stuff like um, that you do every day in your day job, how much yeah. are you thinking that, like, it used to be that we had a pretty narrow target we were aiming at? But, like, yeah. the reason I mention this is, you know, images on my iPhone look spectacular because it's got a thousand nits on a screen and also it's yeah. pretty small, so it's very dense. Um, but if I, you know, email you that picture, that's going to look very different because it's going to no longer assume an HDR, no longer assume a bunch of things, and it's going to be tone mapped to a different kind of space. How much are your things, your products, I guess, your apps, um, sort of bearing that in mind at the moment? Yeah, I mean, uh, we're conservatively going there at, I think, at about the same pace that Adobe uh, and and others are with with their kind of built-in color management. Um, right now, it's possible to uh, edit, you know, HDR in Adobe Premiere and obviously in, in Apple uh, Final Cut Pro 10. Um, and here's the hilarious thing, Mike, it's like, it's finally paying off all this ridiculous work that we did that nobody was interested in back when we first released Magic Bullet, um, because we did all we did everything in Magic Bullet in 32-bit floating point from version 1.0, um, and I would do these demos where I'd overexpose the image and bring it back, and everyone would go ooh and ah, you know. And now that's like table stakes, right? But so we've been kind of ready for the HDR uh, interest. Um, since before it was even thought of that you would have an HDR display because my visual effects background had taught me that HDR was the right place to be doing this kind of image processing. Yeah, because before um, there was HDR, there was open EXRs and open EXRs have all that dynamic range, right? So yeah, yeah. And, and, and it, um, it's, uh, it's important to be able to, uh, to faithfully process that data, it's also important to be able to artfully um, have control over it. I actually, I, I would typically watch Ted Lasso on the um, sort of crappy small TV in my bedroom rather than like on my big home theater screen. Um, but uh, but um, the other day we watched an episode on my iPad Pro, which has that crazy HDR screen. And I did not like it. Like it was oh. distracting to me that the that the um, the peak, you know, brightness of something like a headlight in the background of a shot was twenty times brighter than the actor's face who was supposed to be drawing my attention. I found it very distracting, you know, and um, and it was it's almost like, gosh, are they contractually obligated to like really pump up the HDR look on something like this? Because you don't you don't have to do that. So so. Um, we, uh, uh, you know, we have controls in Colorista, for example, to round off highlights and make them look more cinematic. But in the most recent update, we made that slider go the other way as well. So if you have standard dynamic range footage and you're trying to cut it into an HDR timeline, you can take the highlight roll off 
uh, and you can actually turn up the highlight boost and you can push, you know, standard dynamic range highlights up into the HDR zone if you're trying to match maybe from a variety of sources and that kind of thing. So we're trying to give people tools to make artful, creative choices there without necessarily seeking to presume that just because you can, you must use all of those nits, you know? Yeah, yeah. Having said that, like, uh, yeah, I think I think it's a sad reality that a lot of people will watch material on small screens when yeah. I just think that's something they shouldn't do. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and, and it is, it's it's kind of hard to fight them on it when those small screens are 4K and HDR yeah. and maybe, you know, a larger screen in their home might not be yet, you know. But by um, the same token, yeah, it it sounds better if you put on, uh, you know, proper headphones rather than trying to listen to it off the speaker and the phone. And um, yeah. And the audio guys must have exactly the same discussions on their podcasts um, <laughs> where they hit their heads against the head. Hey, so this brings me to my last point that I want to get to you about, which is your professional opinion now on this computationally photography modified condition, cooked, whatever um, adjective you want to use on here. So that footage, in your experience using your tools or whatever, can you see that being reasonably edited in with stuff that's coming off in Alexa and, and other stuff? Or is there still a gap? Because I would argue that one of the biggest advantages of the iPhone has got nothing to do with anything we've discussed. It's the fact that I happen to have it on me all the time. And now yeah. I might just happen to be able to get the shot that I didn't expect on a... On a I suspect know. that's happened more times than we, than we know. Um, whether it was uh, uh, whether it was a a director on a location scout who shot something quickly and then they never got a better version of it later when they came back to shoot it properly, or whether it was a cramped condition where oh my gosh we can actually gaffer tape this phone into the instrument cluster of of this car or airplane where we could never fit even a GoPro, you know. Um, we know that GoPro is a great example, right? We know that GoPro footage has been elevated to, you know, be used in all kinds of movies. And um, so we, I think, I think it's probably happened, um, but I don't think it's um, a part of anyone's plan necessarily to rely on that. Um, sure. It's, it's, it's absolutely possible, um, especially if you have the editorial uh, choice, you know, to, say yes this is good enough or no we have to go to go reshoot it um uh when it's all firing on all cylinders the stuff that we're seeing from uh these these phones these days is like i was saying it is it is miraculous and and um and i i i'm in kind of a i pinch myself into a funny little spot right because on one hand i really do care about quality and on the other hand, I care a lot more about storytelling, right? So if, if shallow depth of field that is hallucinated by machine learning algorithms and maybe doesn't get all the details right, helps you tell your story better, then that's good, you know? If it distracts from the story, then that's bad. And we're right on the bubble of that right now. But it's hard for me to just say iPhone cinematic mode isn't good enough because what I saw right away, I think I posted this on, on Prolos that um, I, was, I was 
futzing around with the early beta of um, the first portrait mode on the first iPhone that supported it. And I was, I'd been in the backyard shooting test footage of, you know, just trees blown in the wind or whatever, and just kind of trying to get images for the blog. And then, uh, and then my uh, little nephew came over uh, and, and my brother-in-law was, was throwing him in the air and I just snapped a picture of him in portrait mode and it caught this perfect little adorable family moment. And the background was beautifully out of focus and you know, the edge of his hair, is it perfect? It's like, I don't care. That photo is emotional and it's more emotional because I'm not distracted by the junk in the background. So I, I will get in there and, you know, noodle all these pixels and things like that. But at the end of the day, I'm trying to see, does this add up to a useful storytelling tool? And if it isn't today, you know, it's not going to be too long bef before it is, you know? Uh, so, so it's, so it's let me last run the flip side of that to you. Cause yeah. that, it's an interesting thought experiment. I found that I bumbled into myself. So somebody, I do a lot of, um, as you know, work on neural rendering and, uh, digital humans. Yeah. And so people keep on accusing me of like bringing down Western civilization through the, uh, you know, <laughs> making the truth no longer something that you can rely on. And yeah. I, I used to say openly, just as my sort of stock answer to this, like if I want to make a video to, you know, embarrass a president of the United States, I'm not going to have something perfectly flamed, perfectly lit, where they're articulating something that's completely fake. I'd have it looking like it shot on an iPhone through a shower curtain and there's a goat in there, right? And like yeah. the, the sound would be off and you wouldn't be able to quite see what's going on. And, and that's because there's a, an authenticity that comes from the imperfections that um, and then I was in another situation. I was talking to the guys that make Little Michaela, the uh, digital human influencer. And I said, oh, you know, does the, uh, she's got millions of followers. So do you, do they sort of, you know, notice that you upgrade her every once in a while when new tech comes out and, <laughs> and, you know, like does her hair is like better and whatever, like, and they went, oh, no, 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 no. They don't care that she's not real. They just care that she's authentic. And I was like, wow, that's an interesting <laughs> concept. I want that on a t-shirt. That's perfect. Um, and so, so my point to get back to what you were just making about storytelling is one of the great devices we've had since the days that you first wrote the, the uh, DV handbook on indie filmmaking is that you could produce an image that looked like it came off a camcorder as a device for, hey, this was captured off a camcorder and we would you know, have a little record button in the corner with a red yeah. um, dot. And then it became where well, you could you know, have it like it was shot on a phone or whatever. And it was always a bit hokey compared to whatever. But if you run the clock forward five years, like you can't plausibly put up a crappier image and claim it was coming off a phone or a device like that, because <laughs> now you could claim that it's wobble, like it's wobbly and it's like yeah. framed badly or whatever. But generally speaking, as a filmmaker, you're kind of losing that wonderful little, you know. I, I, I had a, I had a customer directly facing this issue. He had a, he had just a day to cut together a political ad for a candidate who had decided to run for office after how they were treated as a protester in front of a government building. Right. So there's this cell phone footage of them being kind of ignored by their elected officials and kind of the decision-making moment where they decided to run for office themselves. And the editor was struggling to cut this archival footage of this decisive moment in with the material that had been shot for the commercial because they looked exactly the same. 
<laughs> the professionally shot material and the stuff that was hastily shot with a phone at the window of a moving car matched too well. And so he found some combination of our universe filters and whatever else to kind of digitalify this stuff in a way that sort of spoke to this comes from a phone from a year ago in a way that worked for the audience but it wasn't realistic like it was he just kind of had to make it up because there isn't there isn't a, a a language of digital nostalgia really for the last maybe five six ten years you know yeah it's weird isn't it like uh it was everything we were running away from and then you could still run back to it when you wanted to imply it was a home movie or imply because you know there is uh, a marvelous you know view of a super eight right which has this yeah sort of, oh gosh yeah just spectacular kind of memory laden emotional kind of uh everything from all the artifacts in it and i'm just yeah. worried that like five years from now we go wow this is some really great footage that we shot of my family five years ago well it looks like it was shot today um, yeah and no uh, it's so true it's so true yeah i i mean we're already there right one of our most popular effects is the one that makes everything looks like look like vhs you know like the the nostalgia of today is for vhs footage not for super eight and 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 yet we're already well past that where plenty of people are watching video today who never had to suffer through vhs anything and 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 yeah what's is what is their nostalgia gonna be i don't know um but it is it has been great talking to you today about these things. And I, I should have ended with your point about the uh, the truth of the filmmaking, because that is absolutely what it's about. Having said that, I always defend my position of being on the uh, I, I I don't claim that I'm any way cleverer than you. I do claim, though, that you're a, a, a more genuine storyteller than I am, because I tend to fall <laughs> back into the tech uh, far more too quickly. But anyway, I do say that a really good painter understands their their oils and their brushes and their technique and even if they're painting a um, abstract piece they they understand the process well and it's that that uh, that frees them up to do what they want to do artistically but that being said Stu, it's been a complete pleasure um, hanging out with you and chatting about cameras uh, as always thank you likewise this is just what i needed man i mean i i had all these thoughts swirling in my head about all this stuff and and uh so this conversation couldn't have come at a better time it's it's always great to catch up with you and and share thoughts about this stuff on the odd chance that someone doesn't know about your profound pro lost uh website do you want to just explain <laughs> what that is because you mentioned it a couple of times Sure. Yeah. So um, uh, there's a there's a gigantic article about aces and color management up there that will will uh, surely cure whatever form of insomnia you've got right now on on prolost.com. And then, of course, you can always find me at uh, 5TU on on Twitter as well. Excellent. Well, again, thanks so much, Stu. And we look forward to uh, talking to you and maybe in a future date about what you've been doing uh, in your day job, as it were. Um, sure. But uh, but for now, thanks so much and uh, check you soon. Thanks, Mike. Well, thanks guys for that. I really enjoyed uh, the conversation. As I mentioned at the start, uh, I've been doing a fair amount of filming with the uh, 13 Pro as well as the 5.1 iOS 5.1 beta. And I found myself nodding in agreement uh, with Stu as to his perception of it, some of it being amazingly magical and uh, as well as some of the insights into the quality of the ProRes capture, which is interesting. Uh, though I did I did uh, actually brick my new phone with the beta software release for some reason, not sure what happened, but hey, that's that's beta. So it'll be interesting to see, again, how this stuff all moves forward and, and what applications for the really professional high-end come out of all this type of research and implementation that's being done. 
As always, feel free to drop us a line with any comments or questions. There's a contact button at the bottom of every page on the FX Guy website. I actually may move it up to the top to uh, spur more comments and feedback from all of you. Uh, but that's it for this episode. Uh, for my partner, Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.